Hi, Gail. Good morning. Do you come around these parts often? <laughs> no, this is my first parts. time. <laughs> my first time and I'm really nervous. Why are you nervous? We're only, we're only going to try to save the world just quickly. Just going to quickly save the world and then we move on. Oh, I'm more nervous that I'm going to do something wrong with the equipment. <laughs> I think I'm fine on the saving the world bit. You could help save the Gale. I would enjoy no, that. Let's, I'm going to save one thing at a time okay. and let's save the hardest for last. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> let's save the planet first and then we'll save Gale. <laughs> Hello and welcome to An Idiot's Guide to Saving the World. I'm Loiso Matinga. And I am Gail Galli. This is the podcast for anyone who cares about building a better world who doesn't quite know where to start. Can, can I compliment you on your lovely podcast voice? Gorgeous. Oh, thank you, Gail. I'm a professional. This is what I do for a living. This is what pays the rent because comedy does not. Oh, is it? Co- I fast now. <laughs> Talk to me a little bit about being a stand-up comedian. How are you going to handle, you know, this line of I'm serious, but I'm just going to be silly when we're talking about saving the world? Well, I don't think, I think everybody's been bogged down by how serious everything is, especially right now in the world. I think a little bit of, if we could speak about the problems and the solutions and with a bit of candor, I think we'd be more willing to speak about them more often. We all believe that we'll make it to Mars quicker than we believe that we're going to save the planet because those conversations are polar. The one sounds fun and the other is always spoken about with dread and heaviness. I think that's so true. So we're going to make saving the world fun. That sounds like what we're committing to here. Definitely fun. It'll probably get serious because some things are serious, but I think it's time for us to be humans about this and not robots. Let's move each other into action. Okay, so, Loiso, what are we doing here? What is the plan? Well, we'll be asking all those questions dum-dums like me really want to ask and we're too scared to ask and what we can do to really make a difference in the world. We'll be speaking to some of the most incredibly inspiring people on the front lines, asking those who are affected why we should care and asking those with great solutions how we can get involved. And uh, of course, there's already a bit of a guide. The UN has given us some kind of a framework. You work with the UN people who mysteriously live in the cloud. What are they doing? I love the idea of UN people. Um, They're like little Lego figures. Uh, Yes, I work with UN people. And UN people made up UN Global Goals. And that's what we're going to be talking about here. So each week, we'll take one of the goals, we'll break down the issue, and we'll come up with solutions to address them. Okay, okay, okay. What are they? So they are basically a great big to-do list for the world. And everything on them, you wouldn't argue with, right? They're about ending hunger, trying to sort out climate, making sure that everyone gets educated, making sure that women and girls have an equal role in the world. You know, no one no one disagrees with them. There's 17 of them, which is a strange number. Um, even God only had 10. But all of the UN member states signed up for them. So every country in the world in 2015 said, yes, that's a, that's a good idea. Let's get these things done by 2030. Okay, cool. That's huge, but it also seems genuine because 17 is a weird number. If it was like a round number, it would feel like at some point people were making <laughs> exactly. things up to get to the number 20. <laughs> so 2030 is around the corner, though. That's that's not far. I know. We need to get everyone on board now if we're going to make them happen. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, so let's jibber-jabber from me and you, even though we both can uh, jabber along forever. Let's get to work.
Okay, episode one. Gail, what are we talking about? Tell me this. Do you like getting your feet wet? Not even a little bit. In fact, I shower with my feet out of the water. It's just so people <laughs> ask me if I like getting my feet wet. I can honestly say, no, not my feet. I do not like getting my feet wet. And I'm not really cared for great expanses of water. That gets even worse for me. It's just, it's horrible. Before you even touch the water, it's the sand at the beach. It gets in everywhere, turns your entire body into sandpaper. My butt cheeks become sandpaper. And then <laughs> you think you're going to get relief in the water. No, you meet a shark. In South Africa, we have great whites. We have mediocre whites too. Look, the whites is great. <laughs> Frankly, the ocean, no, no, not for me. No, thank you. I'm from rural dryness in the mountains. That is where I thrive. Okay. <laughs> well, you'll be learning a lot here then, because this episode is all about life below water. And this goal is my absolute favorite. It's the goal to protect our ocean. So in this episode, we're going to go on a journey around the world to find out whose lives are being threatened, how we can use the ocean to feed ourselves whilst not overusing it, and how we can still go on holiday to a beach without destroying it. Sure. Okay. Um, I hear you. And David Attebra has also been trying to convince me, you know, it's all connected. Even me up in the mountains, inland, I'm connected to the oceans. The deserts feed the oceans that feed us, blah, blah, blah. And the whales won't stop complaining. Every time they get recorded for a podcast, it's just... Never positive from them. So how can we turn their frowns upside down? Help me care. Okay. I think we have a long way to go with you, but we're going to give it a go. The ocean itself is totally critical to our life on Earth. For a start, it covers 70% of the whole planet. So we shouldn't be called Earth. We should be called ocean. Um, and it provides oxygen. You know, one way I've heard it described is every second breath you take is produced by the ocean. It also provides food and livelihoods for billions of people. But it is seriously under threat, like seriously under threat. We've got to do something about it. And the sea levels are rising, which is more ocean, which for me sounds fantastic. There's, it's self-solving this thing. It's making more of itself. Why are we complaining? <laughs> yeah, because, yeah, it'll be fine. Uh, the ocean can uh, rise, but then where do the people go? Right. We have to sort this out because look, I'm the same. I live in the UK. I'm high up. I'm in a wood. It's fine. But we do need to hear from people who live by the ocean because they're living with this reality every day. Now, quiz. Loiso, do you know which country is 99.6% water and the lowest lying country on Earth? Um, uh, the script says Maldives, so I'm going to go with Maldives. <laughs> Congratulations. You're a winner, Loiso. <laughs> Well done. It is the Maldive. And for most of us, that just represents paradise. But you know what? It is so under threat and people fear that those islands could disappear by the end of this century and become uninhabitable by as early as 2050, right? That is 28 years time. No one could go there, let alone live there. So I think we need to take it seriously. And I was so lucky to be able to speak to two women right on the front line down there. One of them was Shauna Amanath, the Minister for the Environment and Technology. And she described to me what life is actually like living on an island nation. We are about 1,200 islands. The biggest island in the Maldives is probably about a square mile. Most of our country is just the ocean. I grew up 
just about 10 minutes from from the beach that's such an important part of my life we use the ocean to go from one place to the other essentially our highways so island culture and an island nation is inherently part of me as well that idea of the ocean being part of her and the people there it's, it's so fascinating to me because as someone who technically also lives on an island you know but in, in England you don't get that sense of the ocean being so close to you but I got the sense from her that she really lives with and by the ocean do you know what I mean yeah, it's a totally different world but, but I mean like did she always know that climate change was threatening you know their their way of life well, I asked her if there was a turning point and she told me actually it was when she left the islands and went to study in Canada and it's only when she saw mountains for the first time that she thought, oh my gosh, we really are a low-lying nation. Wow. But yeah, she said like when from when she was little, she knew that there were impacts of climate change and, and she's definitely seen it getting worse over the decades. One of my earliest memories of going to school, for instance, was on a very rainy days we had to walk through floods and the waves were just coming in to the island as well it was part of life i'm now the minister of environment and one of the things that i have to discuss on a daily basis is about erosion another thing is well, what happens to islands when there's tidal swells Every island in the Maldives, the fresh water, groundwater has been contaminated. So these are very basic, essential things that we have seen, how it has dramatically changed over the past decades. The Maldives is one of the most vulnerable countries to climate change, and it has been for decades. But the extent of the climate crisis now means that life in the Maldives will be unsustainable if we are not able to keep global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees. So that's Sabra Nordine, and she works with the minister. So her role was created just last year under a new special climate emergency legislation. You can see how critical it's getting. Mm. And she's basically trying to get help from leaders around the world to get access to the technical and, and financial assistance they need for adaptation. You know, they are like beyond mitigation now. For those who don't know, because I know the difference between adaptation and mitigation, could you just uh, tell the others what it means? So mitigation is taking action to try and stop the sea levels from rising. But adaptation is accepting that sea levels are rising and you need to build up resilience to it. Like building resilient infrastructure and yeah, like doing what you need to do for the situation you have now. Exactly. Accepting that this is what is happening. And when I hear her speak, I, I actually find it really heartbreaking because you can hear the urgency and frustration in their voices. We are a paradise, but it's a vulnerable paradise. I think the underwater cabinet meeting held by former President Nasheed uh, really highlighted that in back in 2009. A cabinet meeting with a difference. The president of the Maldives, Mohamed Nasheed, and 13 other politicians donned their scuba gear and headed to the bottom of the sea. They communicated using hand signals and whiteboards. And it was a very powerful image. But, you know, that was 2009, and we're still trying to get that same message out. And the level of action that we need is still nowhere near where we need it to be. If Maldives cannot be saved today, we do not feel that 
there is much of a chance for the rest of the world. Oh, wow. 2009. I mean, I was drunk in Thailand and he's been trying to tell the world about this very important issue that they're trying to get, you know, some some eyes on. And can you imagine how frustrating that must be? You know, I, I remember when it came out and seeing the picture, it was a really good stunt, but it wasn't followed through with international action on oceans at all. Anyway, let's go back to Minister Shanna because it is fascinating. And she explained that the Maldives does have its own natural barrier protecting them from rising sea levels. So coral reefs are our rainforests, actually, but below the sea. And around every island, we have a coral reef. And these are basically structures that provides protection for us. It's also the bedrock of our fisheries industry as well. So what we have seen in 2016 El Nino in the Maldives, 73% of our coral life was bleached. We are seeing recovery of it now, but because every year has been a warm year, what we've seen is we are not able to see the recovery at a speed that we want it to be. Okay, that's a huge learning for me right now because I never thought of coral reefs having any sort of effect on human lives other than looking pretty and being a reason to go to Australia. The one only reason to go to Australia. <laughs> yeah. Oh, because I know you don't seem to like Australia much or to go to the Maldives. Or, or, or to go to the Maldives. But, like, you know, everyone goes on honeymoon to the Maldives to go see you know, the coral reefs, right? So how are the locals actually feeling about that? Well, she said this is the really big dilemma that they have. We are a country that is highly dependent on tourism. It has basically lifted us from poverty to a middle-income country. We are a country highly dependent on fisheries as well. Both industries are very much dependent on the health of our oceans, the health of our reefs and the health of our beaches. After the tsunami, some countries were able to implement policies such as you have to leave a buffer zone of this many meters before you develop anything, you know, any kind of buildings along the coast. But the Maldives doesn't have that luxury. Everything is by the coast. There's no higher ground to get on, I su- is I guess what I'm trying to get at. And like what Tonga is going through in terms of not having access to fresh water, being cut off from the rest of the world in terms of communication, not having access to medical care because all of these things are right by the water's edge is what makes it uh, so vulnerable. Now I'm realizing when she's saying there's no higher ground to get on. That is terrifying. I know. And that's why it's so completely overdue that we pay attention to these people and people like them. But um, let's not end on a down note, right? Please, let's not. Okay, so it is a really important message. And I finish by asking Sabra, is she still hopeful? Minister Shauna and I work very closely together and we have for a long time and very encouraged by the fact that there are a lot of other young women especially working with us. And there are so many groups in the Maldives, so many NGOs working 
doing their own little bits, it, it helps. It gives me hope because it shows that there's a lot more people wanting a better way of doing things. And um, honestly, I don't really know what else to do but be hopeful. Okay. Okay. Yes. I'm, I'm starting to care. I'm starting to care a lot because the thing is I had this disconnect, almost like the rhinos situation that we have in South Africa where they're going extinct, but they just not animals we see in our daily lives. So you don't really see that effect. And so coral reefs are even further, you know, they far away. But then when they say that they protect the people on the land from the rising sea levels and, uh, and flooding, that changes how I see coral reefs already. You can see why the ocean has its own separate global goal, because it is a whole ecosystem down there that needs looking after in a, in a very special way. And the other thing they said was how important these ecosystems are to their fisheries. So the coral reefs are like a little fish nursery, right? You, you, the fish are in daycare. They don't get eaten by predators because they're covered by all the spiky coral. And if we kill off the reef, then the fish can't breed properly. And then we end up with no fish to eat. Which touches on that whole, you know, the other problem of overfishing, right? So if we're losing coral, then we're also losing the fish and we're already, you know, overfishing. So whew, what's the goal saying about that? Yeah, well, it says that we absolutely have to stop overfishing. But the overarching message of the goal is not that we stop using the ocean. It's just that we need to use it sustainably and work with the ocean, not against it. Well, to find out what that exactly means, maybe it's time to hear from our next guest. He has been on quite a journey looking for answers and he may have found a promising solution. So to find out more... We sent our producer in the U.S. to meet this gentleman on his boat somewhere on the Long Island Sound. Let's have a listen to this fisherman's tale of ecological redemption. All right. A calm day, huh? Exciting. Come on. Come on, Jupiter, let's go. Brent Smith, owner of Fimble Island Ocean Farm and uh, run an organization called Green Wave, which is training the future farmers, future ocean farmers. We're here in the Thimble Islands. There's a whole bunch of little islands uh, nestled together. Anne Rand was, used to live here and Orson Wells showed films here. But this whole harbor used to be filled with fishing boats. And now there are no commercial boats out, out here. And that's because the lobsters have all moved north because of rising water temperatures. It's stunning how things have changed. Yep, this is it. Okay. There we are. I was, I was born and raised in Newfoundland, Canada, most eastern point in all of North America. I mean, it was a idyllic place to grow up, like little painted red, green, orange salt box houses painted with leftover boat paint. You know, every morning just seeing fleets of boats going out, folks jigging for cod. Sort of when you're in Brooklyn eating your fish, this is what sort of you want your fishery to, to look like. And all I ever wanted to be was a fisherman. So I dropped out of high school when I was 14 and headed out to sea and just fished, you know, cod, tuna, crab, lobster, so you name it, I fished it. And um, God, I love that 
job, right? You know, being in the high seas, 30-foot waves, belly of a boat with 13 other people. But um, I was working on a 170-foot boat at the height of industrialized fishing, right? And it was, you know, humans get too good at what they do, right? Chasing the last fish, you know, people were using helicopters to chase down tuna, uh, wiping out entire ecosystems with trawls. And those of us that were young slowly begin to wake up being like, this is not going to be around for 50 years. Like, you just can't catch this many fish. And I think the captains of industry wanted to fish that last fish. They were thinking 10 years out and then going to retire. We all wanted to spend our lives. And so the wake-up call for me was when the cod stocks crashed back in Newfoundland in Canada, my home, 30,000 people thrown out of work. Right? And it is amazing to see a culture built up over hundreds of years decimated and disappear overnight because of ecological collapse. Right, And that's where, it's where I realized like there aren't going to be any jobs on a dead ocean. And that's where began to flip. We're like, oh, environmentalism is not about birds and bees and bears. That's what they had told us. And it's not. It's an economic issue. It's a kitchen table issue. And it's a cultural issue. Hey, how's it looking? Good. Line one was too cold. Line one, we did win. And then when the cod stocks crashed and began searching for something else, I ended up in the the salmon farms because we were told that aquaculture and salmon farming was the answer to the future right we we're gonna so we're gonna feed the world so i went out to work on the fish farms and it was just i was get disillusioned really really fast because what aquaculture did was made all the mistakes of land-based farming like we were growing basically neither fish nor food pesticides antibiotics like it was like pig farms see we're polluting local waterways and that was not the relationship i wanted to build with the ocean right and instead i think the relationship we have to have towards the planet now is like what's possible and then that's what we'll eat that's what we'll make let me get this in the water so it doesn't freeze you don't want your kelp sitting out when you ask the ocean what to grow the amazing thing is it says, why don't you grow things that don't swim away and you don't have to feed? These zero input foods, no fresh water, no fertilizer, no feed, that take very little infrastructure, just ropes, buoys, anchors, making it a really viable business with low overhead and incredibly sustainable. You know, I didn't invent anything. I mean, the first regenerative ocean farmers were indigenous communities in the Pacific Northwest building clam walls. And then a shipwrecked Irishman became a, the first mussel farmer ever by accident. He put out some nets to catch some ducks and he came out and there were millions of mussels on those nets. So all I did was steal, borrow. It was much as I could. And I'm like this moment in this long, long history. Yeah, nice day out here, huh? But this is just a beautiful day. This makes it look easy out here, a day like this. You know, I never planned to be a seaweed farmer. Like, it's not when I was 14, I headed out to sea. It's like, someday I'm going to grow vegetables underwater. Like, that was not the dream. Um, but it was clear that that was where things needed to go. And the reason is, the starting point with seaweed is you have something that's actually breathing life back into the ocean and ecosystem. Uh, seaweed is, kelp is called the sequoia of the sea. It soaks up, you know, like, five times more carbon than land-based plants. It functions as an artificial reef system all these really powerful benefits which really hits that climate sweet spot and makes it one of the you know i think core crops of the future if you were to farm less than 
5% of U.S. waters. You could grow the protein equivalent of 3 trillion cheeseburgers and the carbon output of 135 million cars. Pretty soon here, in about a couple weeks, the seals are going to show up. A lot of ducks come through. They like to eat the mussels. That's just a sign of the, of the ecosystems alive, right? You know, this isn't a dead patch of water. Seaweed is something that looks a lot more like the soy of the sea, but not evil, right? Where it, it did, unlike soy, it's not deforestation, not using pesticides, any of those things. But like soy, seaweed can be put into so many different things. It's a food, it's fertilizer, it's animal feed, it's plastic alternatives made out of seaweed, it's biofuel, like all of these different things. And this is what really makes me believe in this industry is it's a crop that can be woven through the economy. Set up the, the hauler. And I think that's what brings a lot of people in this industry. Greenwave, our training program, has a waiting list of 8,000 people who want to be trained as ocean farmers just in the U.S. And we have requests from over 110 countries. Like, there's a tsunami of interest. And I think it's because it feels possible, right? You can be just a regular person like me farm and have an impact be a piece of the puzzle in this new era of climate solutions like that's the i think exciting space it's the politics of yes let's take a little taste this is baby leaf got such a delicate flavor you know it, it doesn't have that thick rubbery feel so you can try Isn't that nice yeah Isn't that nice I am not a great mascot for seaweed, right? I am not an environmentalist, right? I'm out here because this is the way to make a living. I'm not a foodie. I will say, I think food culture has begun to shift yet again. I think it's the end of decadence. People don't look to food just about taste and nutrition anymore, but it's also about like jobs and justice and personifying who's growing your food. And, you know, an army of people addressing climate change, trying to feed communities. And then it's the chef's jobs to make it delicious. Like if chefs can't take our seaweeds and make them delicious, it's like they need to get different jobs. Like they're put here on earth at this point to develop a climate cuisine. Okay, let's grab a... Here. You know, what's our relationship to the ocean bin? It's, we're afraid of it, like rising seas, building seawalls. And I think there is this awareness that, no, we need to turn around, embrace the sea as a space for climate solutions, the ocean not just as a place for conservation and tourism and enjoyment, but a, a place to really model what the future can look like. This We don't have to go to Mars. You know, if anybody wants to create a sea shanty about growing kelp, uh, we'll sing it out here once you write it. Let's go. I miss fishing so much. I mean, you know, that thrill. But, I mean, that's part of where we need to, as a society to say goodbye to some things. But the question is, what do we get to keep? And as long as I get to keep my boat, no boss, Try defeating my community and just like succeeding and failing on my own terms, that's a fulfilling life. He sounded like the perfect human, don't you think? I mean, what I was so struck by there was he he loved fishing. Like that was what he was born on earth to do. But he realized there was a problem there and he's adapted. And he's just taken in the whole system and come up with a solution where he's getting 
as much sort of joy out of the fish side of things as he was, but actually he's doing no harm. He's creating this amazing new solution in kelp. What a dude. Do you know how many mountains you have to meditate on with a guru before you have his outlook on life? <laughs> we all just need to be more Brent. I could listen to him talk all day because it was really brilliant to see somebody who embodies the attitude that we really need at this point, which is the old world was the old world and it was great, but it was the old world. And what is serving us now? The changing of how we see the world is so important. And and he illustrates that so beautifully. And so naturally, right? He just mm. like evolved himself into that without any kind of manual or process I think I love given him. at him. What? I, I think I love him. Crazy. Oh dear, this is quite a strong start, isn't it, for us? We want, all want to leave much, and be on ben, Bren's boat. <laughs> I tell you, I, something else I learned in that was how much more um, carbon seaweed absorbs than trees, right? We all talk about you've got to plant more trees, stop knocking down the trees, like, you know, trillion trees need to be planted to soak up all the carbon that we've shoved up into the atmosphere. But he said that seaweed takes five times more carbon in than trees. So... It's not just like edible and can be made yum. It's actually also like doing the biggest job we need right now, which is to reduce the carbon in the atmosphere. He's a genius. He's a genius. It sounds more plausible even than solar right now in terms of a solution that's just green and multi-layered. So he's not solving just food. It's, you know, there are multiple things that you could do with the seaweed. Do you know what I loved actually about that story? You know, his story was not really about fish. His story is about people and jobs and feeding people, right? And that is how I think we need to get this goal across to people. The ocean is about us. We are ocean. He has really changed my mind about how I see the ocean. It's, I see my connectedness to it. I, I see a, my, a more direct human effect on it and need for it. I mean, geez, I sound like, I, feel, I sound like I just came out of a seminar of his and I'm now program. wearing flip, <laughs> You just did the 12 steps. Robes. You're reborn, <laughs> my friend. <laughs> I'm reborn in the world of Bren. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm even interested in no, coral I'm reefs. In, in. Tell me about coral reefs even. Tell me about the sharks. I love sharks. I, I'm excited about the ocean. I want to go to the ocean. I've never made an ocean destination holiday even. Where do people go? You, are you serious? You don't choose your holidays by which bit of coast you're going to go? I really do. I mean, of course, but the ocean is just the background. You know, it makes for pretty pictures. It's the view, you know, how it, it's just a way to flex on Instagram how close your place was to the ocean. Oh, no, 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 no. Okay, you have still far to go, my friend. I go to the ocean. I do like swimming. I, I try surfing very badly, but I, I like really enjoy that feeling of the power of the wave. And also I love snorkeling and, and seeing what's underneath. But I do have this kind of worry whenever I'm there, particularly abroad, like the English. I feel like I'm allowed to go to the English coastline because I live here. But I really worry when we're going to these further flung places. First of all, I'm using up carbon to get there. That's a problem. And then I fear that those bigger tourism places, they must be suffering. But when you talk to people who depend on tourism, like the Maldives and like our next guest, in fact, you do find out that um, they need the tourists too. Okay, let me rephrase my question. How do I go to an ocean destination greenly? That's not really a word, but I know where you're coming from. <laughs> Let's ask our next guest to help us out. Why don't we both, through the power of podcast, go on holiday to the Great Barrier Reef in Australia? Mm. 
So my name is Emma Camp. I'm a marine biologist here in Sydney, Australia, and I'm working on understanding coral resilience in the face of climate change. What we struggle with with coral is that people don't realise it's an animal. So if people think of a panda or, you know, they think of, you know, a polar bear standing on the ice and that kind of emotive image will come back into your consciousness every now and then and you remember that. But you don't get that with coral. So for me, it's finding other ways we can get that connection with people and that's where I think it needs to be with other industries. I think that's where art and media can be really compelling to try to share that narrative but in a way that it keeps people engaged without feeling overwhelmed. What's your view of whether tourism on balance is a good or a bad thing for reefs? It just depends where you are. And so that's because if there is places like the Great Barrier Reef that's really heavily regulated by the government, by what actual impact a tourist can have, um, then actually I would say it has a very minimal impact. And the benefit of seeing the reef, if people do go there and have that connection, I would say they're more likely to want to conserve and protect it. But there are undoubtedly reefs that are overexploited um, because of tourism. So if I'm a tourist, can I look for a higher standard operator? Was that, is that a thing? Yeah, and you can look for that. And, and I definitely would encourage people to, to do research about the operators that you go out with. What's their commitment to the environment? Do they have a commitment to conservation, to education? And so a lot of these operators, they understand that their livelihood is fundamentally dependent on the reef. So seeing them engage in the mechanisms that can help you know, ensure its future to me it is logical, but also it's refreshing to see that different stakeholders are working together to ensure best they can the future of the coral reefs. Can we move to the negative side of the conversation? And I just want to find out more about these badly managed reefs. Like, can you give us examples of which are these and how are they badly managed to give us an idea of what whether our impact or government impact or uh, industry impact has when it's unregulated? And then maybe is there a way to work with them as a global barrier reef combating effort? So it's hard for me to say, again, obviously not being every reef, and I don't want to kind of give third-hand accounts of, of examples. But what I would say you is... You can totally roast reefs here. That's part of the show. No, no, roast the reef. No, but, but, but a really good... But I think a really good example is in Thailand, one of the um, bays there that was in, I think, one of the Leonardo DiCaprio films had lots of tourists go to it. And basically, it just degraded that whole system. And so they stopped tourists going there. The government said, OK, we are going to close it. I think it's actually just potentially reopening now, I believe. Uh, but they've seen that that period where it closed for several years, they've actually seen marine life come back. So that's an example of what happened when it wasn't regulated. The government stepped in and said, look, we need to do something. And it actually gave that system chance to recover. You know, that's, I would say, an example of what can happen if the right decisions are made and, and shows that you can reverse a, a negative situation to be a positive one. That's so interesting. Also funny because um, Leonardo DiCaprio has become such an incredible environmental activist 
I wonder if he was um, stimulated of, by guilty. accidentally starring in the beach. Guilty. Yes, a little <laughs> bit guilty about messing up oh, a global just habitat. Destroyed <laughs> a whole habitat. <laughs> Better start an org or something. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, what I, apart from your own fair reef, what is your favourite reef? Are there any reefs that you visited that either you found surprising, beautiful, or you know would recommend people also try and check out? So I was lucky to spend some time in the Caribbean and the Cayman Islands have um, some amazing reefs in the Caribbean and just very different. So you can actually snorkel from shore and then they've got a a wall that basically drops off thousands of metres. So you just are snorkeling over a reef that's a couple of metres below you and then there's just this drop off and there's sharks and other marine life just, you know, below you. And being able to just access that from land was amazing amazing and definitely somewhere that again if people have the capacity to see is is somewhere i would definitely recommend getting to that sounds horrifying that sounds absolutely <laughs> i saw your face oh my God. as soon as you said sharks let me say and she's I'm got out. this excited I'm look on her here. face while she says immediate drop off into sharks i'm like well, how is that a good idea that's what's giving me my idea now to limit numbers shouldn't some tourist locations be limited to showing that you care? What I would say is that that's kind of what the eco-tourists are doing though, the tourism companies. When you go on there, they have marine biologists on the way out to the reef. They're telling you about why the corals are important and they're they're talking to you about the state of the reef and what the species are with the hope that then when you go in, you've got that higher appreciation of what you're seeing. So I think that's, you know, to me, that's already happening with those operators, at least, you know, several of them here on the Great Barrier Reef. Well, that's good to hear. Can I ask you a question about kind of the elephant in the room with any of this stuff, which is the flight you have to take to get there? And of course, now we are all asked when we get on a flight, do you want to tick the little box and pay a ludicrously tiny fee? I I always see that, don't you? And think it can't only be four pounds on a like return to Australia. That's just, that's Four not pounds helping. to you, well, a million rand to me. <laughs> okay, touche. <laughs> Even still probably not enough though. But the thing, so, but what I'm interested in is normally we think offsetting, okay, planting trees, the green ones that are on the land. But there's more and more, as I understand it, opportunities to offset supporting the reef side of things through mangroves, which is, again, a topic I did not understand at all. I thought mangroves were weird and got in the way of my swimming, but it turns out they're amazing. So can you tell us a bit about that? So there are as you said, lots of ways to offset with planting trees that we have on land. But there are, as you mentioned, other ways that we can offset emissions and mangroves, seagrasses, marshes are really good at carbon capture as well. And so there are initiatives that are targeting other ways to capture these emissions that can also be considered. And as a a person who's sat in a Qantas seat, how do you know, how do I find them? I rarely would tick the one that's on the online system and I actually would look to where I'm travelling to and try to see if I can find local initiatives. If I was going to travel to the Great Barrier Reef, I would go on and put like local Great Barrier Reef carbon offset. It does take time, but if you're committed to make that trip and try to minimise that impact, then you can see what initiatives are out there and also look at things like how much of the money that you contribute is actually going to something that is actually planting a tree, for example, 
example, versus admin fees. So I think, yeah, looking for ways to offset, but also can we consolidate flights? Can we, you know, if you want to travel, say, from Europe to the Great Barrier Reef, can you, you know, and you're really serious about that, can you do that? But then, you know, say, okay, for the next few years, I'm not going to take flights. I'm going to try and minimise, you know, my impact in other ways. Again, these are choices that we can make that, yeah, they're not perfect. They've still got a consequence, but you're managing that consequence. And I think if individuals can look to their everyday actions to see how they can make those adjustments as a collective, it can have a positive effect. But obviously, we still need that mass commitment from government um, to actually ensure that our local efforts actually have an effect as well. That's always my uh, dilemma with driving citizens to make better choices is that the worry that we're distracting from the fact that governments and regulations and businesses need to make massive strides. But the way I always square that circle from promoting all of the global goals is it is the idea that if governments and businesses see that citizens care enough to make a choice and to change their behavior, then they're more likely to do the big moves. Do you think, do you think that's got an echo in the ocean? Yeah, I, I definitely um, agree with that. And, you know, on, on a slightly different note, that same argument comes when people hear that we're doing, you know, reef restoration activities. And obviously we've got a partnership with tour operators on the Great Barrier Reef called the Coral Nurture Programme. And that's looking to build coral resilience through growing nurseries and corals with tour operators on the reef. And, you know, there's people that are, you know, quite vocal that that's distracting from the climate issue because it could lead to people thinking, well, you can just grow coral and everything will be fine. And it's not that at all. And that's where the messaging is so crucial. It's saying that climate change is happening. We're not getting the action that we need quick enough, but that's not the only tool that we have in our toolbox. And so we can do other things to at least help buy time whilst we get the action that we need. And these local restoration efforts can, on a local scale at high value sites, make a difference. Oh, that made me feel happy. That made me reassured because Emma knows what she's talking about and she didn't seem to say that we're not allowed to go anymore, but we just need to think about how we go and, you know, what we do and we're there. So that gave me a lot of hope. Oh, for sure. That's that's a, that's exciting thing for me in this episode is learning all these things that have really changed my mind about how I see the ocean, including Bren, including the idea that coral is an animal? What? Like, <laughs> how do you find that out later? You know what I mean? Like, that's an animal that's dying. It's, so it gives you new perspective. It gives you it gives you an understanding that helps you make better decisions and understand your place in, on this little blue planet of ours. And it's just exciting. Yay! I'm so pleased I got you excited about the ocean. But I'm not going to let you off the hook so easily. Okay. I've decided every week we're going to recap what we've learned so we can give our listeners some ideas for how they can take action. Okay? So this is what we've got. We've got an idiot's guide to saving the world in 30 seconds. Oh, this is a test. You you think I haven't learned anything? Well, show me. Show me what you got. You've got 30 seconds to rattle off everything we can do to take positive action. Loisa Medinga, are you ready? Very. Three, two, one, go. Never buy bottled water, stop buying single plastics, uh, all that kind of stuff. Offset your carbon, uh, invest in local conservation projects and be eco-tourists. Like find out how you can tour ecologically. Uh, be more brand. That's a great one. Change your old ways. The old world is no longer the old world. We need a world for now. Eat seaweed and do other things with seaweed. Buy local and certified fish. Uh, support small scale producers in local markets. Organize a cleanup project for rivers. That's and it. That's it. That's it. 
you did good. Uh, was that good? You did good. And if anybody else does want to find out more, there's loads of information on the Global Goals site. Look up globalgoals.org and click on goal number 14. Woo, we did a lot in our episode one. How is it for you? I'm feeling great. I don't know about you. Look, look, I'm opening tabs. I'm going places. I am going, well, not all places. There'll be no uh, cliffs under the ocean that will be visited by <laughs> moi. No, thank you. I've had all the fun, all the, the privilege of knowledge in this episode. I can't wait until the next ones. So to everyone who's listened, I hope you listen again next week. I'm Luisa Matinga and I'm out. I'm Gil Galli. Thanks for listening and see you next week. An Idiot's Guide to Saving the World is a Radio Wolfgang production made in collaboration with Project Everyone. The producers were Yolaine Goffin, Holly Fisher, and Iva Manley. Additional reporting by Richard Ye. The executive producer was Ellie DiMartino. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave a review. It helps other people find us. And the more people find us, the more people are saving the world. This podcast is supported by Google.org, bringing the best of Google to help solve some of humanity's biggest challenges. Find out more at Google.org.